So, hey, uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables. I do have this one because I put it there last service. Uh, there are sermon notes on communion tables all throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about as well as some questions to go deeper into what we're talking about. We even color-coded the questions. Not just because we're excited about it, but because we think it might help you. And so you have like red questions. And red questions are really simple. They're really surfacy. Like, you know, what is the thing you, was diff- you wish was different about our culture? It's a very surface thing and it doesn't have to go that deep. But then you have blue ones that will go a little bit deeper and the black questions go the deepest that are in there. So you can go through all of those and start to kind of walk through some of what we talk about in the message. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on more and then events in your version will come up by GPS in your smartphone and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, This is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And this kind of sets up what the book of Proverbs is about. It says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear an increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live in the wisdom that you provide. That we would live in the good news and the graciousness of who you are and we would live that outside of these walls in practical ways, not just in our own lives but in how we interact with those around us. And that you would gain great glory by how your people live and the joy and the wisdom that you provide. And we would learn how to live and make a culture that reflects the goodness of who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our second week in this series taking us to the summer on the book of Proverbs. Uh, we started with the idea that we're calling this series Counter Culture, not because we are against or angry at our culture, but we want to be agents for positive change in the culture in which we are today. And that change is going to center on the person of Jesus. Uh, we talk about this thing called the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus did to rescue and save us from our broken way of life. We just did the 16-week series called Didn't See That Coming, all about the recentering of our lives on the gospel and what that means, that Jesus came to make all things new, even us. And when the Bible talks about making things new, it has the connotation of this word called repentance. Now, if you hear the word repent today, you normally think of some guy with a sandwich board in downtown New York City going, repent, the end is near. Well, what repent actually means in the Old and New Testament, it's this idea to return. Return to who God is calling you to be. That God is calling us home. Like there's a story called the prodigal son in the New Testament. And when the prodigal son comes home, that's the idea of repentance. Returning to who God calls us to be. And so it says, remake, renewed, restored. We return to God's true reality. Uh, Mike, who's one of our elders last year, mentioned to me that when the disciples went out with the church into the culture around them, it was regarded as counterculture. In Acts 17, verse 6, it says, they dragged Jason and some brothers before the city authorities. Those are, those are Christians. And these people that drug them there were shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. And Mike made this brilliant statement to me. He says, he says it's not that they were turning the world upside down, they were turning it right side up again. And I went, oh, brilliant, I'm going to use that. And then, but it's not me, it was him. So there you go. And so when we talk about counterculture, it's not about us being angry protesters and holding signs and stuff like that. It's about being a people 
full of joy, who are returning the world to what it was meant to be, living in the gracious good news of who God is. It's a, it's a restored vision of humanity. And so we started last week with the introduction to Proverbs, and I told you my intro was so long, it became two weeks, so this is the second week, and I'm trying to help you understand counterculture and what it looks like and what it does. Uh, last week we talked about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, and knowledge many times can come very fast, especially in our internet age. You can earn lots of learn lots of things, but wisdom typically comes very slow. And so I I showed you three marks of a kind of a messed up culture like the one we live in. And those three things were, number one, it's a culture who's obsessed by youth. And our culture is obsessed by youth. There is no beauty in seeing us getting old, so we try and hide it as long as we can. And so we, we react in youthful reactions to everything that comes out as rather than thinking through things in wisdom. Secondly, you see people hold power over one another. And thirdly, you have spiritual leaders who do not talk about the grace of God, but simply go along with whatever culture says so everybody feels comfortable. And then we spoke about the hope of what the entire scriptures, including Proverbs, points to. Being a people who bring about a culture of hope and life that's found in the person of Jesus. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do with gentleness and respect. And so we should have this hope where our lives look a little bit different because of how we live. And I was going to ask you if you think it's possible to create this counterculture in this world, but you're in church, and if I ask you a question like that, you're most likely going to say, yes, because you're in church, and that seems like the right answer. But when you start to live out these doors in, in our culture in a different way, it starts to look really hard because all the culture wants to push back against you living in a way that really brings life. And so many times the real answer to that is, is no. I don't know how easy it is to actually do this because we're called to love people who are hard to love. We're called to love people who disagree with us. The assumption of First Peter 3.15 is people should be asking about our lives because they actually look different. Part of the gospel going forward is how it's changed our lives to the point that other people see us and be like, well, that's different, and you're different in a good way, right? That's different. What's up with that? Like, do you have something in your life that you do really well? Maybe you are very comfortable at, and people look at you and like, oh, well, how do you do that? Like, I have a friend. His name's Pete. He's a construction guy, and I'm trying to hang a door in my house right now, and I asked Pete to come over and show me how to hang a door properly because I don't hang doors well. What I do is I, as I look and I stick – this probably means nothing to you if you've never tried to hang a door. But I, I take the door, and I, and I screw the jam with the, on, into the wall, and I take the rest of it and go – I don't know what to do with this. Screw, screw, screw. And it's, all, it's all wonky and terrible. So I was asking Pete, who's, who's a contractor, to come over and show me how to He goes, okay, great. I'll, I'll come and show you. I mean, I don't know if he's good at it. He just has a lot of confidence. So maybe as wonky as mine, but hey, I'm going to give it a shot, right? I got my friend John. John is very good with running electrical and things like that. He's an engineer. And so a couple weeks ago, he comes over to my house, and I'm like, hey, can you help me figure out these three-ways and four-ways switches? And he draws a diagram, and it looks like spaghetti, and I don't even know what it means. And so he's like, well, we'll fix this. So six hours later, we're kind of figuring out and what's going on. And my house hasn't burned down yet, so I assume he knows what he's doing. Right? So he has these things where he's very confident. Well, the scriptures teach that the beauty of the gospel is that when God saves us, we may still stumble and fall, but we begin to grow in wisdom and understanding what God's doing. That God has overcome our folly. That God leads us into wisdom. That he sees, he sees us through our sin and our death and he gives us eternal life. And that means sometimes we might look like we know what we're doing, but it's really only God working through us. 
Like maybe if you get to a place where your marriage starts to kind of function and work and you're serving one another and people say, well, how does your marriage work? Or why don't your kids hate you? Or how do you have joy in the midst of all of this loss sometimes that you suffer? We always go back to that the answer is Jesus. Because he has rescued and saved us and brought us into new life. Now, when people ask Jesus questions, what he normally did is he goes back and he points to the beginning. Like in Matthew eight nineteen, they say, how about this? And Jesus says, well, in the beginning, it was like this. And that's pointing to the beginning of the book of Genesis. And so what I want to do coming out of last week is take you in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and show you aspects of what a God-glorifying culture looked like in Genesis 1 and 2. And then I'll take you to Genesis 3 and show you aspects of a culture that has run away from who he is and what that looks like. So if you want to, you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna hit a lot of verses. I'm gonna give you a big overview today. Uh, this is our aspects of a God-glorifying culture from Genesis chapter one. The first one is that there is respect for God's rule and word. And in Genesis, what you see is that God creates and things just jump to his word. Like, let there be light. And light's like, I'm light. I'm here. Let's go. Right? That's because it's like, boom, we're here. God's calling. I'm going to go with what God calls me to do. It's amazing. It's a beautiful picture of how our lives are meant to function, that God speaks and, and we go. The second thing you see is the image and likeness of God is honored. It's, it's why we are called to be a people who honor and respect other people because they are made in the image of God just like we are. And that means we are meant to love the born and the unborn and kids and adults and handicapped and able body, the young and the elderly. And those, there is no derision because of where people's backgrounds and where they've been from or their struggles because we're made in God's image and God's arms are calling us back in again. Thirdly, people are blessed by God and everything is done by grace. Everything that happens there is because of God's kindness and God's goodness. Fourthly, and this is something that kind of rubs up against our culture today, is there are male and female distinctions. That we are created equal, but different. And it's okay to be different. There isn't a fight to see who has dominance over somebody else. In the beginning, they worshiped God together as a team. And this means it's, it's okay for, for guys to be dudes and girls to be girly or be tomboys, whatever you want. There isn't a fear of being who God made and called you to be. Unlike today, and this makes me sound really old, but uh, there's a Calvin Klein ad recently. And I'm like, I'm like watching this thing going, I don't know if that's for a boy or a girl or a teenager or an adult. I don't know. I don't know. And then I'm like, that's just because I'm old, so I have no idea. But it, th- this is the idea of these distinctions that it was okay to have these distinctions, and it's okay to be okay with those distinctions. Fifthly, uh, there is goodness of God's creation that moves forward in life because it was centered around who God is and that God brings life and he calls us into life. And sixthly, in Genesis chapter 1, mankind is given a job description, and that's to fulfill a cultural mandate. Genesis one twenty eight says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, these words for dominion and subdue, they're the words radah and kabash. And it has, in the, in the greatest context possible, it simply means responsibility and stewardship. That it is, it is ruling and filling and keeping and God gives man this job description. You're going to steward creation for me. And it's a big job description. It's funny when you get to Genesis 2 because it's like, how much am I responsible for? Everything. Well, that's a lot. I'm going to need some help. I will make you a suitable helper. Well, that's good because we're going to need lots of kids because it's going to be a big effort in this. So, and it's also meant to show that children are meant to be a blessing to the earth, that we are a blessing around us through the children that come out of the marriages that people have. So aspects of a God-glorifying culture from Genesis chapter 2. 
Firstly, there's a desire for good knowledge. Good knowledge. We're meant to love good knowledge, hate bad knowledge. So, so what does that mean? It means that God speaks good things. We're supposed to trust him with the things that he actually says. Like today, uh, you know, one of the main reasonings that people want to live together and things like that is you say you have to know if you're compatible. You have to know if you like it. Single guys will hang out in a locker room and like, have you slept with her? Is she any good? Like that's a litmus test. There are some people today who push back against that now and they say, I'm not going to kiss my wife till I marry her. We're not going to have sex till we get married because, you know, if one of is bad in bed, how are we going to know? Because we're the only other person that they slept with. So how are we supposed to know about that? There's some knowledge that we don't need. Like we don't need to know how, to ha- know how a hangover feels. You don't have to know how detox feels. You don't have to know what a divorce feels like. This is, God comes and he says, trust me for the good. Trust me for the good. We need good knowledge. Knowledge that God imparts to us. And, and again, this is all the things from a God-glorifying culture. I'm not saying we haven't messed this up because we have, and God brings redemption, but let me just keep going. Uh, secondly, in Genesis 2, there is work. Uh, Genesis teaches that work is actually good. Before sin entered the world, we had work to do. Steward creation, all of it. That's amazing. It is a benefit for us to be able to actually work hard and well. And so we work smart, and we make things, and we invest in what is good. You're even told that in heaven, in eternity, one day, we will still have work to do. It's, we're not all going to sit around in like a big room and just sing songs all day. That kind of sounds like hell to me. I, I would rather go out and work and do something with my hands because, and that's what we get to do. We get to actually, there's meaningful work that brings meaning to who we are. Thirdly, you see in Genesis 2 that there's a consequence for sin. At Genesis 2.17, God says, you sin, you die. That means there is a right and a wrong, and it's all okay to say what's right and wrong. Not in a judgmental, mean-spirited way, but that it is okay to say this is right, and this is not good for you over here. Fourthly, there is naming and shaping. And this is where Adam goes, and he, and he names the animals. And in so naming the animals, he's taking responsibility for them, and by doing that, it actually shapes him. By his stewardship that is underneath him, it shapes him to who he is meant to be. Uh, fifthly, there is respectable young men and young women, because you see Adam, he takes his wife, and he loves her, and he sings to her. I know some ladies, your husbands don't sing that well, and that'd be your worst nightmare in the world, but they can do other things that speak goodness to you and love you the way that you need to be loved, and that's what happens there. Uh, Adam is strong and tender and loves his wife in a way that she needs to be loved, which leads to number six, there is healthy lovemaking in a God-honoring culture. Now, I'm not going to give you the sex talk, so don't freak out and don't worry about it. Uh, But there is beauty in good sex in this glorifying culture. Do you know that the first two commands that God gives in the book of Genesis to mankind is eat lots of food and have lots of sex? That's a good God right there, okay? I'm like, that's, that's amazing. We are told that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. And what it tells us is intimacy was meant to be pure. And too often today we allow shame to enter into our marriages and be part of our relationship. But in a God-glorifying culture, it's not we're we're able to be open before one another. And seventhly, this leads into fruitful children. These are, these are kids who, who we teach to love God and they contribute to things around us. It's why a man is said to leave his mother and his father, be united to his wife. They become one flesh. Kids are a blessing that come out of that. And in Proverbs, what you'll see is that no names are given to people. What you have is categories and identities. You will see in a negative context, the liar, the sluggard, the fool, the harlot, the drunkard, the glutton. People say, don't call me that. I didn't. If you feel like I did... Uh, that's the Holy Spirit's conviction. Stop doing it. I don't know, whatever. Okay, uh, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying. Okay, uh, people say, you know, I don't like the Bible calls things black and white in, in the scriptures. Well, it, it does because it shows you what God is calling us 
into. In the scriptures, you'll also see the noble wife, lady wisdom, the friend, the father, the son. You have all of these things. And it's meant to show that sometimes in our lives, we have certain labels placed upon us. And we walk around feeling we're like this thing. But in a God-glorifying culture, all things can be renamed and redeemed. You do not have to be this thing. And so what you see is that God is constantly changing people's names in the scriptures. You have Abraham becomes Abraham, Jacob becomes Israel, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul. In a God-glorifying culture, all things can be redeemed. And now you get to Genesis chapter 3 and aspects of a culture who run away from God or, or hate God. Uh, in Genesis 3, you have this thing called sin. Man causes rebels against God and, and against all the good that God did. We destroy creation and ourselves in the process. All hell literally breaks le- loose. Satan tries to set up a kingdom of lies and pride and death, and we buy right into it, and we still do. So what does that look like? Well, first off, Satan is welcome. And I know that sounds very churchy to say, but let me explain what I mean by that. I don't mean that we walk around with pentagrams sacrificing goats on homemade altars. What, what I mean is that we still buy into the same lies, into the same sin that threw us into this whole mess in the first place. That God doesn't know what he's doing. That God isn't truly good. That we're smarter than everyone else and our own personal happiness is more important than God's glory. Do we still do that? Of course we do. Every single day. So we still buy into that. And secondly, then there becomes confusion about what God's words actually say in the scriptures. In Genesis 3, Eve is confused. Adam outright rejects God's words. They, If they were confused, they didn't go back and say, God, what did you mean about this fruit and eating this or that? They don't. They just twist God's words to agree with what they already want to do. Do we still do that? Oh, yeah, of course we do. Thirdly, then, you get passive and silent men. And let me explain what I also mean by that. There's this old Puritan proverb that says, when Adam was away, Eve fell astray. Like, Adam's out working, doing his job, naming the animals and that, and then that poor dumb woman, she's talking to the serpent. And, oh, that, and that's not what happened. In Genesis 3, 6, Adam is standing right there doing nothing. I, I always like to say this. I mean, if there's a talking snake that was talking to my wife, I'd be like, shut up, talking snake, you're weird. That's not supposed to happen. Right? But Adam's like, oh, whatever, you know, I don't want to get involved in that. She might get mad at me. He doesn't do anything. He just stands there. As we are meant to be a people who step into each other's lives and love one another in a way that we'd be willing to call one another back to rightness and holiness and goodness. The mental gymnastics that people do today to get the Bible to agree with them is simply amazing. Which this then leads into is this thing called shame. And this is shown in how Adam and Eve hide from the presence of God. They hide in the garden behind trees so that the God of the universe can't actually see them. This is shame. We don't want God to see who we really are. We know that God calls us to something different. And many times instead of going to him, we run away from him. Well, I could never go to church. Lightning would strike me. That's shame. That's shame. And that is an aspect of a culture that has run away from God because it doesn't matter where we've been or what we've done. God wants us to come to him. Because he is the one who loves us and chases us down and shows us grace and mercy. But this shame then leads, fifthly, into marital strife. And I'm not talking about arguing. I think arguing in marriage can be good and healthy if it's done correctly. But it's where we hide things from one another and where we start to push away one another and push God out of the relationship. I told you this last week. Sometimes married couples get so irritated when one of the other people, one of the other people, the other person, decides, hey, maybe we should pray in the midst of this because we're really arguing a lot. Let's just stop and pray. And the other one's like, whoa, we want to be spiritual now? What? Why do you want to pray? And just, it gets all really weird and stuff when maybe the best thing you could do in the midst of something is actually stop and pray. 
which then leads to the sixth thing in this, which is blaming someone else for our sin, for the things that we do and for our problems. Like Adam, Adam blames God and his wife when they sin. Adam looks at God and he goes, it's that woman that you gave me. You guys figure it out. That is, that is like a very scary thing to say to the God of the universe and not even be wearing a cup, right? It's your fault. <laughs> Right? Oh, I don't know. Oh, my goodness. That's just kind of crazy. But we do this all the time. We always say, oh, I wouldn't have sinned if you wouldn't have done this. You made me do this. You made me do that. And we're always blaming someone else rather than saying, I am the problem. I need to be dealt with in this. We do this all the time. I was a great person until I met so-and-so, and they made me do this. No, it's not my fault. Parents, you do this with your kids all the time. You say, oh, my kid's great. It's only when they hang out with so-and-so. Huh? Yeah, I'm not saying so-and-so's not a knucklehead. I'm just saying your kid is too. That's all I'm saying. If the shoe fits. All right, so this leads into this thing called the curse. The curse, okay? Uh, now, because of our sin and what we've done to run away from God, work and life becomes hard. The ground fights against us. It is told through pain and toil, women now bear children. I, my wife and I tried to have kids for years. Uh, we couldn't, but but I I was never really opposed to really wanting wanting a kid. But I also was not the one that was going to birth that kid. When when I was when I was in high school, I am still scarred from this. I was in this class called senior seminar, and they showed a video of a woman giving birth, like from the doctor's perspective. You saw it coming out, and I was like, "Dear God, I can't believe there's any people on this planet." Because <laughs> Holy cow, that looks painful, right? I, I tell you, veterans will sit around and talk about their war stories. Ladies, I think you have every right to do that as well. Like, I was in labor 36 hours, and I finally crowned in 10 more hours. I'd be like, oh, my goodness. Like, some of you have those stories. Whew. Anyway, it's a curse. Anyway, uh, there's also a fight to see who's going to be the boss and who's in charge rather than serving one another, which then also in see comes death. And today we obsess over death and we fear death and sometimes we embrace death and we call it the circle of life. No, death is not the circle of life. Death is our enemy. The scriptures say that the last enemy destroyed is death because death is not good. Death is the result of Genesis 3 in the fall. And so it is destroyed. And the truth is there is sin in the world. There's a curse that there's a lot of stuff under and it makes making a God-glorifying culture very difficult, but it's still what we're called to do. Guys, I, I wish we could all go down to KFC and spend 1995 and get a bucket of wisdom. But that is not how it works. It's not. See, it takes time and effort and trusting God and sitting under his leadership and letting him lead us where we need to go. What God calls us to be in Proverbs is a redeemed people with God-fearing hearts who practically live scriptural wisdom in humility. And last week I gave you a list of what this kind of looks like. Uh, there could be more, but this was my list. Uh, first off, knees-bent submission to God, uh, we, where we trust him and we walk with him and the things that he says. And then that then goes out into the submission to God-given authorities, whether it's home or church or state or things like that. I think it is also men of honor, not chauvinism, but men of honor. Uh, I think it's women of dignity. I actually wrote in my notes... I shouldn't say this, but I mean, it says not cougars. <laughs> Yeek! We're just, it's our culture, man. Okay, uh, women of dignity. Thirdly, uh, covenant marriages that are kissed by God's grace. That's kissed by God's grace. Children who, when children come out of these marriages, they're, they're nursed upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that there is worshipful feasting and drinking and singing and lovemaking. And if you don't think you can have any fun because you read the Bible, well, you need to read the Bible again because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. There's a reason God has all these feast days in the Old Testament where he tells his people, get together and sing and make merry and, and make good steaks and all this great stuff because cows are made of steak. You know, <laughs> joy. Joy is more than just Bible study. Joy is living the life that God calls us to live. There is more joy in the Bible than you can ever imagine. And we need to be people who understand that. Uh, there, I think there's friendships reigned upon with love and honesty and laughter that are centered in the good news of Jesus. I think that we have honorable labor conducted with vigor. That our that money that comes into our hands, we have financial hands extended to God, the poor, future generations, where we think about what comes after us and not just how to consume and get all we can. I think it is cups filled with God's joy in all circumstances, and everything is lifted up to God's glorious grace. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Those are, those are the themes that kind of come out of the scriptures, and especially Proverbs. Uh, and last week I told you, you've got to have imagination to see that. As you walk through Proverbs, you might get different reactions. I'm hoping it's excitement, uh, though sometimes you may be convicted of sin. You might think, well, I'm the fool, or I'm the drunkard, or I'm the slugger, and that was just Saturday night. You've got to understand that when we are convicted of our sin, we repent. We go to God, and we trust, and we return to who he is calling us to be. We leave the past behind and walk into God's glorious future and his hope and his grace because it's centered on what he has done to rescue and save us. He longs to make us new again. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, the apostle Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Holy Bible is the first Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. See, and this is again meant to remind us that who we are comes out of what God has done for us. So it's not us climbing a ladder of trying to bring about this God-honoring culture so that God will love us. It's that God already does love us. And because we trust Him, we begin to live out differently in our lives. Um, 1 Corinthians one twenty six to 31, it, it talks about if maybe we're a people who think that I, I just can't do that, that's so much, that's so much, and, and I'm just not there. I, how I, I can't even parallel park. How am I going to bring about a God-honoring culture? 1 Corinthians one twenty six to 31, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus and became, and became to his wisdom from God, who became to his wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What those verses tell me is that we may feel like we're never going to measure up. We can never do it. But it's not us that's doing it. It's Jesus that does it. And we might be just dumb and incompetent enough to pull this thing off. I, sometimes I feel like utter stupidity. I'm so close to that. And if you feel like you're overwhelmed, then we ask God for hope and love and grace. And God generously gives those things. 
And so let me end with this. Uh, I think we've got to be careful in creating a counterculture that we're not pulled to three different things. Uh, the first one is nostalgia, because we will always be tempted to romanticize the past and to think about what has come before. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Like so often, we want to look back at the good old days. Honestly, the good old days is Genesis 1 and 2. Everything in Genesis 1 and 2 is a string of very bad days. Okay, so if you don't look back, great. But you look at the honoring culture from Genesis 1 and 2 that was there. Today, people tend to look back. Oh, remember the 50s and the 60s? They were so good. It's like Lever to Beaver in America. And, you know, it's, it's, seriously, Ward and June Cleaver from Lever to Beaver slept in separate beds. I don't know. I don't, that's, not, that's not my thing. In the 70s, they rejected the 50s and 60s. The 80s rejected the 70s. In the 80s, I was in high school. I had a mullet. We do not want to go back there. Okay? Do not want that to happen. Yeah, some people finally got rid of their feathered hair and Madonna disappeared, so that's a good thing. In 1 Peter 1.18, it says, We are redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to us. And what that means is they didn't have it figured out either. Christians, so often, though, they love nostalgia. Remember when, remember when. We're supposed to look forward to God's future, understanding the best part of the past is Christ's rescue of us. Secondly, I think we need to be careful not to be drawn into trendiness. Because Christians love to be thought that they're cool and accepted by the culture around us. We don't need to imitate the culture around us. Where nostalgia wants you to look at the past and romanticize the past, trendiness wants you to look at the near future when people are saying and start to romanticize that. Guys, our culture many times is very toxic. If the past is bad, many times the future is going to be that times 10. So we've got to be careful. People ask me sometimes about Element. Hey, is Element cool and, or hip? Or, and I, it's not, I guess we're not cool because I just said the word hip, so it's not, whatever. <laughs> but right, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I don't, our job is not to be cool. Our job is not to be trendy. I, I think our job is to be culturally relevant to where we are. I mean, it's why I'm not standing up here in a robe and sandals, though sometimes that might be more comfortable, you know, but I don't. Like, I, seriously, even the clothes I wear, I, these clothes are like, usually my wife buys my clothes for me and says, here, put this on. No, that doesn't work. Okay, put this on, you know, and, and, and she, like, buys my clothes and my jeans, and trendiness is hard. It costs a lot of money. So that's why everything comes off the clearance rack. So apparently, I'm not hyper cool because I buy off the clearance rack. I, my, my goal for my life, I was thinking, I just want to be old, fat, and grumpy because I can get there, right? So I'm be, guys, I, I got to tell you, we are not necessarily to be a trendy people or to be a people who are culturally relevant, who speak to the culture in a way they understand, but we also center our lives on the gospel, that God would be made known. If we're going to imitate anybody, that's who we imitate. We imitate God in our lives. And that begins, with, again, with faith and imagination that permits us to dream of what our lives could collectively and individually look like if we imitate God in all things. And the third thing you've got to watch out for is separating ourselves from the greater culture around us. Changing culture is hard, so a lot of, cultures want, a lot of churches want to disengage and just hang out with people who are just like them. Oh, I'm going to people who, who think the same way I do, who vote the same way I do, so we kind of get this little click together. I call that ju- doing church by bomb shelter. Because we just want to hide from the culture while the rest of the world burns. But Jesus never gives us that option. In John 17, verses 15 through 18, it says, Jesus prays for us. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He sends us out. Not to be nostalgic, not to be trendy, not to hide away. 
but to be a people who love and honor him in the midst of the culture that we live in. And so we'll you know, start talking about this cultural understanding going through Proverbs. There's going to be lots of stuff. We're going, to, we're going to talk about money and kids and singleness and marriage and men and women, all this crazy stuff. And it really kind of starts small, uh, like, a, like a seed in the ground. And one day that begins to blossom and grow. And maybe your grandkids you know, can build a swing in it. And maybe your great-grandkids build a fort on the top of this thing. But it doesn't start trying to overthrow government or taking over banking or public schools. It starts in little things. It's, it's we pray. And we, and we read our Bibles. And we, and we love our friends. And if you're married, you love your spouse. And if you have kids, you, you love your kids. That's where it starts. It starts in practical ways. As like I said last week, some of you in this room, you, you have so much knowledge and you keep trying to acquire so much more knowledge. Sometimes you need to stop seeking more knowledge and begin to live out what you already know. Because when we live out in wisdom, we live out the gospel. And you may not see yourself as vital, but you are. Because the church is meant to be a body. It's many parts working together. But we must work together as a people. Again, this is why we started this year with the whole understanding of the gospel of who Jesus is and, and what he has done so we can now step into the next part of understanding how that begins to be lived out. We collectively seek God and in doing so, we will birth this new culture around us. We need to look beyond where we are as a church and as a culture and by God's grace, see where he's calling us to be. That we, that we speak the truth of who he is into one another's lives that we trust him enough that he knows what the good is. And so we live in his goodness and his righteousness, that we do all things to bring him glory because when God gets glory, we live in so much joy. See, our God is good, and he loves for his people to live in his goodness. And this is one of the reasons why every week we talk about communion. I bring you guys back to this place where we, you take that cracker because it's representative of Christ's body that was broken for us. So you break the cracker. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me because we were a Genesis 3 people. We lived in this way that we had separated ourselves from God and others. This thing called sin just encompassed our lives. And yet what Jesus does at this place is he takes away that sin that separates us from God and us from one another. And he restores us back into relationship again because he is the one who rescues. We don't try and build a culture because it makes God love us. We build this different culture because God has already loved us. And he has offered and extended us grace. And so we, in loving him back, simply begin to live out these great things that God has first done for us. And this starts with our merriments and understanding of what Jesus did to rescue and save us. So we take communion every week. The band's going to come up. As they do, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, maybe you're in a place today where you hear about this counterculture thing and you're like, ooh, yeah, that sounds really cool. I want to do that. I don't think I can do that. And you would like someone to pray for you? They would love to pray with you. Maybe you have a relationship in your life right now that the, the gospel could fully speak into that relationship. And you don't even know though how to begin that conversation. And you want someone to begin to pray with you to talk through that, to help you work through some of those things. Well, they'd love to be able to do that with you this morning. Because what we have to understand is that the gospel speaks good news into every aspect and area of our life. And when we are a people who are centered on that first, this God-glorifying culture that we're called to bring about, it still may be hard, but it makes so much more sense because we have a direction, because we understand what has first been done in and for us. 
So we live this out communally with people around us, loving as God loves us. If you want someone to pray with you, they love to do that. Uh, There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. It's again that he gave to us, we give back. We do not pass a plate. It's always meant to be a response to what God has done. Uh, there's food outside, grab something to eat, grab some sermon notes, maybe talk to one another about you know, birthing this culture, maybe at your workplace or in your home or your neighborhood or with your friends or your, I don't know, uh, maybe your kids play soccer. I've got a lot of people whose parents or play so- have kids play soccer in my gospel community. And so maybe you know, among those parents, and what does that look like? And you can talk about that and what the, the vital reality of the gospel and the good news means in all of those places. Because when we begin to truly live the understanding of the gospel out in all things, it begins to change everything. And there's so much joy and grace that God longs to bring into all of our relationships. And so let's be a people who begin to live out the great love that God has first given to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us as a people daily what it means to trust you in the midst of our relationships. What it means to trust you in our workplaces. What it means to trust you no matter where we are. And that you would always bring us back to the understanding of your rescue and redemption of us. And our thankfulness for what you have done. That you have brought us into relationship with you. And that excitement of what you have done would inform how we begin to live as a people who are actually excited about who you are and the things that you are doing and that the joy that we experience because of your grace would be infectious to people around us. And we would speak in ways that make sense to the world around us. And that we'd understand that just as we come before you exactly as we are, we can invite other people who are in the same place to come the same way, exactly as they are. And that you are the one who cleans us up and leads us into new life and new grace and new hope again. Teach us to see what you're calling us into by your glorious grace and to trust you in all things because you are good. Teach us as your people to live in that goodness. We ask this in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.